Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hi guys, this is Dr. Santosh, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. In, once again, my after dark voice as my little baby is sleeping about six feet away. Ooh, are we going? Are we going travel medicine after dark tonight? Let, let's go after dark. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I was going over all our various notes and topics, and I realized we haven't had a chance to talk with an expert in a while. Oh, yeah. But as I was going over it, I happened to stumble across a old card for a physician who I've known for a long, long time. He's a, a dear family friend. And happens to also be a practitioner of traditional Chinese medicine. And I thought that would be a fantastic topic to cover next. So I called him up and asked if he would be available. And he was gracious enough to grant me some time. Um, now, before we get into intros and things like that, travelers, Chinese medicine is a big field. China's a huge country. <laughs> It's an entirely different kind of medicine. It is absolutely ludicrous to think we can tell you everything about everything in just a single episode. So we're going to do it in two. <laughs> I think we can get everything to cover the history of a uh, varied and rich culture over a few thousand years, Josh, you think? Maybe 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think we can condense two, a few thousand episodes, years into two hours. Two hours, absolutely. We'll talk. Maybe maybe two hours, 15 minutes. <laughs> these, these might run a little long. The, you know, they're give or take, you know, because, you know, when we're talking about, you know, 6,000 or 6,500, it also, it's, it's, <laughs> it's give and take. But <laughs> I think you're, it starts off with a very important point that here, the, the medicine that Josh and I practice and pretty much all of your hosts of you know, travel medicine podcasts, our nurses, etc., we follow a system which uh, by and large came from the Western world, meaning Europe and post-Renaissance, and focuses on very particular problems in this day and age and talks about things like risk and benefit and takes very specific approach and tries to say, all right, what is a very particular problem and what is a very particular solution or two variables for you science-minded types and see how they interact. But this is a philosophy of science or a philosophy of medicine, and this is how our development is crafted and diagnoses are crafted and treatments are crafted, and it's also shaped by all of our economic and social forces. Well, tra traditional Chinese medicine has grown up in the same way, but down a different path. So the approach is trying to compare them one to the other and trying to talk about an entire philosophy of medicine would be like trying to say, okay, we're going to spend two hours talking about medicine, <laughs> you know, and, and cover every nook and cranny. Just like you said, Josh, absolutely impossible. Yeah, so we're going to do the best we can, and we do have a little bit of an advantage in that, uh, Santosh, I don't know if you are aware, but I also was fortunate enough to train very briefly in traditional Chinese medicine, although certainly not to the point where I should be practicing it uh, on really anybody. Oh, yeah. So you had told me about this. Was that before... The, your medical school in 2000, let's say 2005, 2006, or was it afterwards? I was still in medical school and had completed my third year. So I had already done some clinical rotations. Oh, okay. And I was given a chance to go live and train in China for effectively a, a quarter if you're on the... UC, University of California system, mm -hmm. and that time was spent living in Beijing with daily lectures in the morning and rounding in the afternoon in the hospitals. Oh, wow. So you this was almost like an away rotation. You, a, you actually have an educational credit in TCM. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, that means that you had, from the standpoint of how we practice medicine in the West, solid, solid grounding in human anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, immunology, and infectious disease. So you, you kind of were ready to examine this from medical scientist kind of view. Sure, <laughs> sure. So periodically we'll be intercutting both my experiences as well as interviews, uh, clips of an interview with our our guest for the next couple episodes is going to be Dr. Kevin McNamee, who originally got his engineering degree at UCLA 
and then became a fully licensed chiropractor and traditional Chinese medicine practitioner. And he trained both here as well as in Dalian Medical College in the People's Republic of China. And he brought back his multidisciplinary study to the U.S. Now, to give you an idea of how long he's been practicing, he was one of the physicians who wrote my earliest letters of recommendation to be admitted to medical school. So he is, was already well in practice when you... When, way back in the day when I was only yay high. <laughs> uh, this is an audio medium, Josh? <laughs> audio. <laughs> that's why I said yay high. <laughs> oh, that clears it up perfectly. Moving on. <laughs> Before we can get into the actual treatments that you all are familiar with from movies and television, mm -hmm. we need to go into a little bit of the history. Etymology here is going to be tricky because my, my Mandarin is not as good as it once was. <laughs> I only speak that phrase and this one which explains it. <laughs> No, oh, it, very it, nice. It, okay. All right. No, it, it means I do speak Mandarin, but not not very well. I speak it poorly. Oh, okay. And so please excuse me for that. So let's go back into the history. We mentioned that Santosh and I are trained in Western medicine, which is a pretty old tradition. It dates back to the at least the ancient Greeks, and to an extent, even ancient Egypt and Assyria, as you all know from my favorite Egyptian scrolls. <laughs> but Chinese medicine is a wholly different tradition, and actually even older, in the sense that we know who founded medicine in Egypt. It was Imhotep, was the patron saint who wrote a lot of things down. Yeah. But in China, these characters are a cross between documented historical figures and legends. These are, you know, heroes of literature which will often pop up not just in history books, but they'll pop up in like comic books and they mythology in the tradition of China and actually quite a bit of the East including Hindu culture that does not dismiss them as historical people. That just means that, oh, there's some fun stories that we have. You can think of Jesus, known historical figure. Right. There's a number of supernatural abilities that were attributed to him, whether you choose to believe them or not. Mm -hmm. There you go. So the earliest was known as Fuxi, uh, which is F-U space X-I, who was also called Baoshi and he dates back over 2,000 years, and he was thought to be more of an early tribal leader rather than an emperor. He developed the trigrams of the I Ching, the famous book of changes, mm -hmm. and ancient texts, you know, kind of briefly mentioned that he created the eight trigrams and nine needles, uh, which we'll, we'll get into, but it's different needle types and lengths used in acupuncture. And that's kind of where documented history on him ends. He created the needle, and he was very old. 
<laughs> so the, the second this movie? is this is analogous to a lot of our history historical figures in Western medicine who codified you know some of the first observations of nature in the human body. One type of condition seems to go with another condition. If you look for this, you'll find that. So, the very very simple comparisons of how various states of being kind of tracked together. Now, the second historical figure is Shen Nong, known as the Divine Husbandry Man. This does <laughs> not mean that he was a catch lady, although he might have been. Yeah. But he was said to have taught the art of husbandry or farming and also discovered the curative properties of herbs by tasting over a hundred different varieties. In one story, he would ingest the plants uh, for himself to test and analyze their individual effects. And in one day, he tasted over 70 toxic substances. Oh, dear just to determine what their effects would be and if they could help get rid of people's illnesses or whatnot. And now, this, there were no written records at this time. These are all the things we found were already you're referring to him as an old figure. So it said his discoveries were passed down verbally from generation to generation and eventually documented. Yeah. Oral tradition is going to keep coming up a lot in our conversations today. The third mythical figure is Huang Di, the Yellow Emperor, and now we're looking at actual documented history from about 2698 BC, or before Christian era, to 2598. Uh, and yes, those dates do go backward because before Christian era, people traveled backwards through time. <laughs> Strange now, things happen, BC. He is allegedly the author of the Neijing which is the Yellow Emperor's Canon of Internal Medicine, which is the oldest Chinese medical textbook that was completed during the... It was completed gradually. It wasn't actually finished until the Warring States period of China, which was around 221 BC. So it was added to for quite a while. Think of it as the world's very first Wikipedia. <laughs> Everyone had a say. Yeah, it, it includes astronomy, geography, medicine, science, culture, philosophy, uh, probably BuzzFeed quizzes. <laughs> yeah, this is an era of learning, and the European side of knowledge had this as well, where if you were trying to describe natural phenomenon, you couldn't exclude anything. You had to kind of pile everything in, because, and I think very wisely slow, it was understood that everything affected everything somehow. And so someone would have a theory on how the stars would affect human health or how, you know, the migration of buffalo would affect the running of particular rivers or drought or rain. And so, you know, there was a way to kind of pair everything together somehow through just observation. The Western equivalent of this would be the histories of Pliny the Elder mm -hmm. in Greece and Rome. Sure. Now, the work that the Yellow Emperor's Canon, or Neijing, and that's canon as in doctrine and book of laws, yeah, not, not canon kaboom. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
how did you learn medicine? Oh, I studied a cannon. <laughs> here, just stand right here. I'm going to cure all your ills. <laughs> the Neijing consisted of two distinct and separate books. The Su Wen, which was the one begun by the Yellow Emperor and co-authored by everyone else, and the Ling Shu. The Su Wen covers general principles of health and standard methods at the time of diagnosis and treatment. The Ling Shu is more specifically a treatise on the art of acupuncture and moxibustion and are uniquely Chinese because they're never mentioned in the medical history of any other nation. Mm. This was the general knowledge, but again, you have access to Wikipedia and that does not make our average listener a medical professional. Please. We're talking to you, Jenny McCarthy. If you're listening to our <laughs> podcast, I don't know why you would. They had this history, but the duties of doctors themselves in China were defined in the early Zhu dynasty, which started around 1100 BC and ran through 221 BC. That's, again, around the ending in the Warring States period. And that period saw the creation of Confucianism, Taoism, just so you have an idea of what was going on in China. Medicine was a practical and effective art. The court would have its own court physician as well as the court witch. So it was already viewed as distinct from magic. Right. Medicine was based on observation and experience. And the theories that it was based on at the time were, the, were yin and yang, the wuxing or five elements concept. And really, we'll get into the philosophy in a moment. So our bonus legend is a physician from the Han dynasty, Zhang Zhangjing, who was one of China's most famous ancient physicians and known as the saint of medicine. And he wrote a very famous paper known as the Shangha Zabinglun, which is translates to, if you read the characters, on cold damage. But it is a, a paper on febrile disease and miscellaneous diseases that contains over a hundred formulas, many of which are still used in traditional Chinese medicine today. And with this paper, he really jump-started studying diseases by a clinical system of treating the patient based on their syndrome. And that was the first time that this method of medicine really appeared in China. So in that sense, it, it was very similar to the development of Western medicine, a process of observation, of gradual learning, whether you're tasting 70 toxic herbs in a day <laughs> or, or holding spirited debates with the court witch. <laughs> sure. And, you know, these were the same type of debates that you saw all throughout Western medicine as we come up through the 1500s, 1600s, your favorite era Josh, the Victorian era, the idea that you can build on knowledge by putting together more and more observations and then place diseases into particular families or groups based on their commonalities and then try to approach those diseases based on those commonalities with similar treatments and hopefully achieve cure or or therapy. Why don't we start getting into that now? And I think this is an excellent time to introduce our guest speaker. Tell me a little bit about who are you and you know what what you do. My name is Dr. Kevin McNamee. I enjoy having people come in who are hurting and make them feel better as they leave. 
And I do that through a series of therapies such as acupuncture, chiropractic, rehabilitation, physical therapy, pain management. Where did you learn this? How did you first become interested in traditional Asian medicine? After I got my engineering degree from UCLA, I had an interest all the way through in healthcare. Uh, enrolled at chiropractic school, and uh, in the second term of chiropractic school, a, a wonderful acupuncturist came in and did a demonstration of Asian medicine and its power and potential to my classmates at a nice little small seminar. He took two classmates of mine out of the audience and did a demonstration of the potential of acupuncture on these patients, did a brief history, and applied acupressure, just using his fingers on key acupuncture points. One gentleman had just sprained his ankle on the athletic field exercising before he came in. It was swollen before he started, and after he had the treatment, he was able to move and walk a whole lot easier. The second had meniscal tear surgery about a week earlier, and he was on crutches, and it was in those days where arthroscopic surgery wasn't done, where the rehab is a lot quicker, so he was in pretty bad shape. After doing the brief acupressure session with him, stimulating key acupuncture points, got him up and moving around with less pain and more functional and said to myself, there's something here. So a group of us enrolled at one of the local acupuncture schools and uh, dual enrolled. Monday through Friday was chiropractic school and Saturday, Sunday was acupuncture school. And they designed a specific program for us uh, given that we'd already have many of the basic sciences already taken care of in the one program. And they uh, uh, designed one just we focused on the Asian medicine portion all the way through. And after I did my in two internships, went over to China, studied in Dalian at the medical school there. And uh, Dalian's in mainland China? It's mainland China. It's on the east coast near North Korea. And it's a little peninsula that sticks out. It's a big port city of about small town of five million people, as they say. And we're in a thousand bed hospital doing our rotations and learning under the uh, people there that were terrific with Asian medicine and different practitioners. The Chinese model of healthcare is one where they had the hospitals where everyone worked side by side. Didn't have freestanding clinics at that time. So you had the Asian medicine practitioner, you had the acupuncturist, you had the physical therapy, the internist, the cardiologist, radiologist, laboratory, all accessible to the patients as they came into the clinic. So you had the best of both worlds available to the patient. No. <laughs> so that's our, that's our guest for the week. You're gonna be hearing from him periodically in and out as as we fall back on his expertise to help us define and explain a number of these different ideas and topics. Yeah, he I you know, I was I was so gratified for a few things because I will be very, very honest. When you are trained in Western medicine, there are quite a few, um, I'd say, mentors and people who are a little bit more old school, um, especially if they were kind of in the 1950s, 60s, very paternalistic form of medicine, very proud form of medicine training, where there was medicine defined as everything we learned here in med school in the United States. And then there was, you know, complete cockamamie. <laughs> but as you can tell, you know, he takes a completely different approach. He's a, you know, Western-minded individual who wanted to explore a different philosophy. 
And I think that it really behooves us in the Western world to show the same respect and reverence and say, oh, you have your philosophy, I have mine. Let's look at the pros and cons and see what we can learn from each other. And one of the best things scientific training teaches us is that we may not know everything. Oh, in fact, it's... And that's okay. Yeah, and in fact, it's the first premise. It is the most important question. I should say the most important statement that differentiates scientific learning from everything else, which is we start with, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you. Yeah. I start... Every day. Every day. You just crack your eyes I open. Don't know. Oh, God, I don't know. Oh, God, just uh, just existential, just a black pit, and uh, build from there. <laughs> yeah. I open my eyes in the morning. Where did I go just now? <laughs> but I think so, it's, it's terribly important to start with I don't know and, uh, and move on from there. So I think let's let's start with that. Let's say when it comes to the philosophy of Chinese medicine or Asian medicine, it's very different from Western. So let's start with I don't know and learn a little bit about the philosophy and the model of disease in Chinese medicine. Sure. And this is the way he views the body, uh, views the systems in the body, how the body becomes diseased and how to approach treatment. So let's hear from it. <laughs> the system of traditional Chinese medicine is very different from Western. What's the basic premise of traditional Chinese medicine? Great question. You have to remember that Asian medicine started some 3,000 to 5,000 years ago. The exact date and time is not known. Historic records weren't kept. But it potentially had evolved from India, which kept its system as Ayurvedic, moved into China, that developed Asian medicine, and then branched out into Korea, Japan, Vietnam, and so forth, and then throughout the world. So the system at the time, you have to remember what skills the practitioner had available to them were their hands, their eyes, sense of smell, hearing, taste, and so forth. So they had their five senses, their exam skill, their history skills, but they didn't have a lot of the technology that we have today. MRIs, CAT scans, x-rays, lab tests, those weren't available, but yet they worked with what they had, their senses, to get the patient to a sense of wellness. And that's where it evolved, was looking at how the body moves through disease and through moving towards wellness, what changes occurred, and trying to make sense of that. And what evolved was a paradigm known as traditional Chinese or traditional Asian medicine depending on how you want to uh, coin it. That's what evolved based on these historic practitioners looking at using the five senses, the disease process, going from various stages of the disease condition. And they used their five senses, and they developed the system of Asian medicine. Okay. Now, is this at all similar to the European system of the four humors belief of disease? What's What's the model of disease in traditional Chinese medicine? The model in Chinese medicine revolves around a balance, and that balance being yin and yang. What the original uh, developers of Asian medicine observed in nature as well as in human beings is that there must be a balance in order for the body to sustain itself. I'll give you an example. If you look at the daytime versus nighttime, you've got a dual opposite there, the yin-yang as they refer to it. 
So you always have some daylight, you have some nighttime. Different processes take place during that in nature and in our bodies. You have activity and you have rest, the dual opposites there. You have hot, you have cold, you have dry, you have damp. All those things come together in evaluating the patient in sickness and disease and wellness. So they try to create a balance between the two, and if you're in balance, your body has a better way of handling any disease process and maintaining wellness. So the balance is essential, and by doing that, the um, patient has a better chance of dealing with whatever life throws at Hopefully I remembered to dub in a proper transition sound. If not, you all enjoyed that, I trust. <laughs> Please do, and, and spread the word about Josh's amazing onomatopoeia. <laughs> so that's, that's the basic philosophy, and it's a very interesting one when compared to Western medicine. You know, of course, we all know yin and yang just from the symbol because... I'm pretty sure no one in the U.S. has grown up without seeing at least one kung fu movie. Sure. And uh, if by chance you have never seen it before, um, find a circle with a squiggly line going down the middle, which is composed of two semicircles, which are kind of split and moved vertically so that the, the two points touch. And so it makes an S in the middle of it. Uh, one half will be black, but will contain a small white circle. And the other one will be white and contain a small black circle. And there you go, yin-yang. So we'll we'll go into each of these in a little bit more detail. But the overall idea that, that Dr. McNamee conveyed is that traditional Chinese medicine link the body with the mind in a perpetual way. And it uses the five elements and qi and the zongfu organs. And even though they all have different names and functions, it's all dominated by the same mind and vitality. And I'm going to give you an example from a, a medical textbook of Chinese medicine I happen to have. And I'm going to read it because, frankly, when it comes to poetic language, I'm sorry, but Asia has us beat hands down. <laughs> and... You know, this comes back to Western medicine wanting to be rather precise, you know, very careful in its description. Here's a brief uh, passage from one of one of the textbooks I actually have in front of me. I, I own this textbook from my training. Mm -hmm. And here we go. Chapter 71 on the miraculous pivot. The heart is the sovereign organ where mental activities originate. If the sovereign is sound... All the subordinate organs will faithfully attend to their own duties. If the sovereign is unsound, there will occur disorder in chi and dysfunction among the twelve internal organs, thus severely damaging the body as a country with no proper rule falls into chaos. That is a fancy wow. way of saying a heart attack will throw you into some deep trouble. <laughs> it is. That's, that's a great way of... I cannot wait to go into the hospital tomorrow and tell one of my patients, I'm sorry, but your sovereign is unsound. <laughs> uh, your body is just, it's chaos. There, your subordinate organs are running everywhere. <laughs> There's no leadership. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if we need to increase taxes or decrease taxes. <laughs> Here's what I'm going to do. We're going to declare martial law. <laughs> well, that's what that's what we do in Western medicine. We're the martial law. There you go. 
So let's let's <laughs> go into a few of the terms that were mentioned. Now, the ancient belief on which traditional Asian medicine is based includes the idea that the human body is a miniature version of the larger surrounding universe. And harmony is from two opposing yet complementary forces called the yin and the yang. And when they're, harm- when they're in harmony, they support health. And everybody has both. Even though one is a male force and the other is a female force, you have both inside. And all disease results from an imbalance between these forces. And th- okay. Yeah, and this is nothing too different if you go back to Aristotle and Plato and Hippocrates when we were talking about imbalances of, in this case, maybe four humors. But a lot of Western philosophers in ancient Greece and Rome started out with talking about a balance of forces or a balance of fluids and how that related to health in general. So that's the overall concept. The, the key concepts that make up this this harmony is chi, which is a vital energy that flows through the body and performs multiple functions in maintaining health. And acupuncture is believed to work on chi, and it's well, you know, we'll learn that a lot of chi channels are very similar to nerve pathways. And manipulation of chi, as as understood by Chinese practitioners, does seem to have an effect, and one that is not wholly understood. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Stood by Western medicine yet, so we don't quite have... Naruto-like ninja abilities, <laughs> but there may be something to the concept of an energy flowing along the lines. Right, and this is popularized in your, you know, Wu-Tang Kung Fu movies and everything where there were some practitioners of chi in the martial arts that could actually project this out as waves of energy that could harm, hurt, destroy, or even heal without even touching. But this is a much more subtle idea that there are, you know, just like there are impulses of uh, chemoelectrical energy running down your nerves that are allowing you to move and touch and feel, there are spiritual energies or paranormal type of forces at work that can be manipulated if you know the right physical points to touch in order to change those up. So the the big reason why we're having such trouble 
looking at these in Western medicine, so examining the effect of these interventions on diseases from a Western standpoint are kind of twofold. The first is the variability in how the practitioners work, because as our expert will tell us, Josh, a lot of this is kind of an art form of how to manipulate chi in a human being. Um, and I guess we're going to hear more soon about acupuncture and acupressure as applied to lines of chi. The other issue, aside from this being an art form, so that means there's nothing that's absolutely standardized in the way that you perform a manipulation of chi as a healer. But the other side of this is how they would define a disorder or an imbalance or disease. This was highly specific from practitioner to practitioner and patient to patient. So now we're trying to take a system of study which looks at extreme specifics like the Western side and study the broader umbrella type of understanding that traditional Asian medicine takes. So that difficulty and compatibility is the heart or the sovereign of why it's so tough to get these two schools to communicate. I'm going to remember that sovereign thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, another component of traditional Chinese medicine is what's known as Zhang Fu organs. Or again, it's two organs, one hollow, one solid, or Zhang and Fu, mm -hmm. which hold each other in balance and you know the the pairs of them are and again this is from my own my own training and what I had to study during my rotations there the organs and pairs are the liver and gallbladder the heart and small intestine the spleen and the stomach the lungs and the large intestine and the kidney and urinary bladder so the Fu organs are hollow and believed to be yang in nature, whereas the Zong organs are solid and believed to be yin in nature. And when they're out of balance, depending which one is in control, you'll see different conditions. For example, the gallbladder and liver. When one is out of whack, you'll see disorders of fear, insomnia, bitter taste in the mouth, or distension. These are things that we would also make the diagnosis of in Western medicine, but we don't necessarily pair the organs. Sure. And the reason for that is that right now we see the organ systems as more connected by their um, physical and chemical relationships. So rather than thinking of, well, solid goes with hollow, we think of the heart communicating with the rest of the body through the series of blood vessels, the brain communicating with the rest of the body through uh, nerves coming down the spinal cord and then going out to the rest of the body. This is the relationship that we will look at more so in a, in a little bit more of a complex fashion using chemical signaling rather than a philosophical bent of, of solid and hollow. However, Josh, the, um, the overlap is quite striking sometimes. I mean, absolutely, the gallbladder is a downstream organ from the liver because bile is uh, manufactured 
in the liver, in the hepatocytes. It's excreted through biliary ducts, and then it's stored in the gallbladder downstream. If you have a blockage in that downstream pathway, say in the bile duct or in the gallbladder, then you will have upstream effects in the liver, um, such as you know uh, liver damage in, in the worst-case scenario, like hepatitis. Now, when we want to add an additional layer onto this, there's also the the third component, which is the five elements or the Wei Bing school, which ties each of these Zongfu organs to a specific element, and that helps to make diagnosis. Now, this this element chart, and I'll, I'll very briefly go into it and give you a few examples, but it's set up like the most impressive game of rock, paper, scissors, lizard, Spock <laughs> that you have ever seen. Sure. And, you know, let's go into very basic. So, for example, we mentioned the Zongfu organs of liver and gallbladder. Those are tied to the element of wood with the sense organ being the eyes and the associated flavor being sour with the associated climate being wind. I'll get into what all that means in a moment, but even just reasoning on your own, liver and gallbladder, yeah, you can very easily tell when something is wrong by looking at the eyes because you'll develop jaundice, which first affects the eyes. Or a lot of bile will leave a sour taste in your mouth. The heart and small intestine are paired with fire and the sense organ through the tongue associated with heat. The spleen and stomach, earth, sense organ, mouth, lung, and large intestine are metal through the nose, and kidney and bladder are water through the ears. Now, some of these seem very intuitive. Of course, the lungs are going to have a sense organ of the nose, the stomach through the mouth. You know, the ears and kidney don't make sense, but pairing Mm -hmm. kidney with the water element, absolutely, again. Yeah. Now, so. I will tell you something terribly interesting, which goes to embryology. And this may have been a observation that was in common in Western medicine and Eastern medicine, or it may have been pure coincidence. But in embryology, when the kidneys are developing in the fetus, the ears are developing at the same time. So one of the things that we look for as neonatologists in pediatrics is one of the first things that we do is we examine the morphology of the ears. And a lot of the time, if you have a malformation of the ear, a very specific malformation of the ear, then you should reflexively take a look at the kidneys here in Western medicine by ultrasound. Because the two develop together, we have noticed that there's a correlation between ear malformations and kidney malformations. So, uh, who's to say? Right, and this remember, this is someone in ancient China said the kidney and bladder are associated with the element water. Sure. They have a salty flavor and they can be read <laughs> through the ear. <laughs> they can be read through the ear or the cold climate. Well, now we have diseases like Alport syndrome, which is a kidney problem associated with black urine or hereditary deafness. And and, and the two go very well together. And, uh, you know, the, the reason for it we know now is, um, you know, immunologic and developmental. Um, but... You know, I think it would be fair to say that 
you know, ancient peoples on both sides of this, you know, enormous continent of Eurasia were coming to similar conclusions by finding the same patterns in human development and disease. So when we're talking about the climates, that doesn't mean that you're only going to be, you have to be in this climate to get this disease. So let me give you a couple examples. And again, this dates back to my training. So we're talking about the climate of wind. And again, straight from the textbook, wind is a primary pathogenic or disease-causing factor, which is able to carry other pathogens into the body as it invades. Because it is young in its nature, it tends to attack the upper portions and outer surfaces of the body first. Mm -hmm. However, it can quickly penetrate more deeply inside and progress into serious disease if not expelled. Diseases caused by wind are associated with external conditions, colds and flus, or symptoms that come and go or change in location, such as arthritis, abdominal pain, which can move from one location to another. Although wind diseases are rapid in onset, Wind can linger in the body for long periods of time and progress if it was undiagnosed or treated improperly. That is, again, poetic, but pretty sophisticated given our understanding. Once you, it's, it's a consistent method that matches up with all the things it claims. Sure, sure. So that, and, and this is kind of the tough part that Western medicine practitioners uh, can often fail to understand is that because we have governing boards here in the United States, like the Liaison Committee for Medical Education, the LCME, who set very strict and precise standards for everything that we learn, and then graduate medical education is the same thing, like, you know, med- you know medical concepts should be taught along this route. Um, there are, in fact, very strict rules for certified Chinese medicine and Asian medicine practitioners to follow in terms of training and understanding of the human body and disease. Now, I will bring up one issue here, Josh, that's in the United States, is that because the way that medicine is kind of handed over to uh, entities like healthcare uh, conglomerates and insurance companies, that means everything has to have disease codes and, you know, you know, in order to bill, right? And, and we Listen, Santosh, yeah. we have a oh. code for repeat injury by a falling space. <laughs> I'm pretty sure ICD-10 can, can find some way to code for dampness. The, absolutely. And, and that's, you know, that's the wonder of ICD-10. But before we had that, you know, the, there was no good way to code for these, you know, terms that were foreign to Western side. In true Asian medicine, you know, they have a system of thinking which is as rigorous and unified as we have a system of thinking and understanding in Western medicine. Right. Now, you know, here's another example of dampness. Um, Again, dampness is heavy and turbid. It creates a blockage of qi wherever it settles, and this can create a heavy sensation that could be dull, achiness, or numbness. It can create symptoms in such as discharge from the body, excessive phlegm, edema, mucus in the stool. These discharges may often have a heavy, turbid kind of odor. The patient with this pathogen will feel sluggish, and digestion may be affected, leading to abdominal distension and bloating. So again, this is a very 
detailed system that is just something that we have absolutely no experience with with our Western training. Right, and sometimes that lack of understanding just leads to dismissal, and I think that's absolutely the wrong thing to do. So let's let's check back in with Dr. McNamee and ask, given what we've learned so far, can traditional Chinese medicine be better or more useful than the Western approach for any specific conditions or diseases? Remember the Asian medicine approach deals with the balance between the yin and the yang, the activity and the rest, the heat and cold, the damp and dry. Uh, what happens in the approach that is used is that the practitioner needs to decide which is the best way to go. It may be, you know what, you need to have antibiotics done here and I need to send you over to another practitioner. Or let's try the traditional Chinese medicine approach and see how you respond because that may be all you need. So the practitioner may use acupuncture, which goes into specific points of the body that are discreetly placed regardless of where you are in the human being. Everyone has acupuncture points on them. Frequently they correspond to what are called motor points of the muscles where the brain sends nerves down into the spine then over to the organs as well as the muscles and they insert into those muscles and when there's motor points stimulate that contracts the muscle or makes the organ work. So acupuncture tends to benefit more in the musculoskeletal area but does have an internal medicine type approach by various reflexes in the body you stimulate certain acupuncture points and that will in turn affect the internal organs. From an herbology standpoint, which is very similar to the antibiotics in the sense that you're taking the biochemistry out of the natural product and allowing it to be released in the body to treat whatever the condition it is. So you're using biochemistry there when you're doing herbology to uh, bridge it to someone who may not understand the approach. we're using herbology in the same way we're using biochemistry with a pharmaceutical end to treat a condition. So those two approaches complement each other. The acupuncture tends more towards the musculoskeletal, but it can affect internal organs. The herbology can affect the musculoskeletal, but it's used primarily for internal medicine. You know, it's a very interesting point that that Dr. McNamee brings up in that we aren't great at handling certain overall conditions with with our style of practice. Sure. Um, We're still learning how to master chronic pain. And I think, Josh, I think you can attest sometimes we're quite far away. Somehow in the, the traditional approach, as far as he is concerned he's able to take philosophical concepts mind concepts and with his approach put together you know the whole human in terms of chronic pain and find a way to help them out um especially i think in a lot of times when you know we in here in the west so we just outright fail yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of strengths and and weaknesses in both, and it seems like TCM does a little bit better in dealing with chronic things, chronic degenerative disease, chronic pain, uh, geriatric patients, or as I like to call them, chronic people. <laughs> you know, sovereigns giving up. You, you you can only reign for so long before. <laughs> 
before your subjects rise up and rebel against you. That's true. And if that is not a great description of old age, I just don't know what is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You have to give up the throne. You have to give up the throne at some point. I really feel like I need to work this into more of my, my discussions with patients and be like, listen, your sovereign is doing okay, but I think your grand vizier may have something <laughs> something in the wings. You got to watch out. Yeah. I don't know about your bishop, man. The rook's okay. <laughs> so ultimately, I think what we've, what we've learned is that in the end, and Santosh, you, you probably have a better handle on this, Western medicine tends to regard disease as a research object. It, it looks to find the specific cause and then eradicate that cause either by cutting it out with surgery or treating it with drugs. And it focuses more on complete eradication. Right. Traditional and Chinese tends to focus on, on adaptation and balance and control. Uh, so in the opinion of traditional Asian medicine, man should coexist peacefully with everything, including his microbial organisms. Right. And, <laughs> and that's actually the conclusions that we are reaching right now in Western medicine, Western medical science, that Antibiotics as we know them today, um, purified compounds which kill off bacteria, um, they were looked upon as panacea. Oh my God, this is wonderful. And in fact, even to this day, they're one of the greatest innovations that have affected mortality and allowed for continued existence of our species in some cases. But we knew how well it worked on someone who was acutely ill from bacterial infection in a hurry. Oh my God, it would turn them around. But what we weren't thinking about how this would affect things down the road. And now we are studying. We have used ultrasounds and imaging and scientific trials, and they've used observation and the Captain Planet crew. Yeah. <laughs> You know, Mati, uh, he never gets enough love, but he... How much cooler would Mati be if his ring was metal? (laughs) Earth, fire, wind, water, metal. (laughs) That would have been a very different show. It would have been so weird. And Captain Planet, I don't think, would have been as... um, Well, your powers combined, I am Dr. Planet. That is how I need to go in and introduce myself. I am Dr. Planet, and your sovereign is out of whack. Uh, (laughs) I'm here to clear the pollution. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm here to take your pollution down to zero. Uh, Getting back on track, which I know we're having trouble doing, but that's okay. (laughs) Um, I think it is important to note that when it comes to acute disease in uh, traditional Chinese medicine, traditional Asian medicine, the past and the history is terribly important. Um, The development that traditional Chinese medicine had come to was to understand where you could succeed and where you could fail. And I think one of the issues we do have here in the West, sometimes we go too far in trying to help. And there is no, um, I, I would say sometimes it's it's felt like a failure if we cannot 
admit that this is the best that we can do and what we should be doing is trying to make a person comfortable and happy or to say in the traditional Chinese medicine as in balance as possible. So now that you all hopefully have at least a, a rough grounding in the history and philosophy of traditional Chinese medicine. Let's find out a little bit about what somebody who practices it has to do in order to be licensed and accredited. The programs are broken down into three parts. First are the basic sciences where you have your uh, chemistry, physics, biochemistry, uh, so forth, and you jump into your anatomy, your physiology, your biochemistry. After that, you jump into your clinical sciences consisting of your uh, rotations that you'll do in orthopedics, neurology, internal medicine, dermatology, so forth. And then after that, now you jump into your internship where you go into the outpatient facilities and treat uh, patients that enter the clinics and uh, address whatever issues they have. So you're trying to put the basic sciences with the clinical sciences into the internship and treating patients. And after you see so many patients, do so many hours, uh, you take your state board exams and you're able to open your practice in whatever state you decide to go to. Okay. And is this match up with your your training in China? They had a similar model? China's model is very similar in that uh, they, after high school, are pretty much told what area they're going into as far as a career. Okay. And they would go into the Chinese medicine uh, programs and then from there, uh, they would do their rotations. And then um, uh, in, in, in China, their approach tends to be a little bit more rigorous than what we have currently here in the United States, where they did more hours of training both in the academic end as well as the clinical end. Uh, it's a, a challenge that we have here in the United States in that uh, the profession has been trying to push towards a elevated academic level and clinical level with some resistance from some of the owners of the colleges who train the Asian medicine practitioners. So there's no work hour restrictions in Chinese residency? Not that I know of. In fact, it, we worked quite a few hours, and uh, it was a, definitely a different paradigm that they have there when they do the res rotations there. That's correct. Do you follow a particular school or style of practice in Chinese medicine? I came across the term Wei Bing a couple times, which sounds like five elements. Are there? What can you tell me about those? Depending on what the patient presents with a condition and your history, your exam, there's a number of different approaches that you can use in Asian medicine. Uh, you have the five elements, which is one approach. You have Shang Han Len Wen Bing is another approach, which is used more for internal heat and cold conditions for colds and flus, things of that nature. Uh, you have uh, your basic approach of the symptomatology of the patient based on the um, heat, cold, damp, dry. Uh, those are approaches. So depending on which way you want to go, in the same way that if you had a patient going to surgery, you may have four, five, six different approaches on a surgical intervention to achieve the same goal. Is this patient uh, over 80 years old? Are they 20 years old? Do they have diabetes? Do they not? Do they have any ad other adverse conditions that may say don't use approach A, B, and C, but you want to use D, E, or F? Same applies to Asian medicine. It's just not one school or approach, but it encompasses the same paradigm overall, but broken down differently depending on which uh, approach you want to use for that patient. So are there specialists in just heat cold, like we have 
orthopedics or dermatologists here? Is this something that I want to be a heat cold specialist? I want to be a damp dry specialist? There's a that's a good question. Whether you want to be five elements or Shang and Lun Wen Bing, or uh, you know uh, any other approach there, what comes down to is that the practitioner is usually exposed to all the different approaches, and they have to decide in their own practice which way they want to go. Uh, there are no specific rotations afterwards uh, graduating from school and getting your license for residencies at this point here in the United States. They have them in China. They don't have them here in the U.S. just yet. The profession is evolving and growing in that direction. Um, but it's one where the practitioner can make their choice. The practitioners frequently will tend to specialize in certain areas, uh, whether it be women's health care, internal medicine, uh, physical medicine type issues. There's a range in which you can go but pretty much the patients as they present will pretty much dictate the direction of the practice. <laughs> um, so that's, that actually sounds very similar in many ways to what our training was. Oh, sure, yeah. A lot of didactic education and then uh, being put on wards and having the crap kicked out of us. <laughs> I think that's actually a good place to bring this particular episode to a close. We've given you the backgrounds, the philosophy, and the training. And now that you've all come through this, this initial residency with us, next week we will hear a lot more from Dr. McNamee and really start getting into how acupuncture, how cupping, how tweena, all the different practices that make Chinese medicine uniquely Chinese really work and are applied. Sure. And I, I think it's going to be important to uh, let you guys know um, there's going to be some of you who are strong, you can say either believers or kind of um, either either in opposition or for Western medicine or traditional Chinese medicine. And, you know, there are going to be some of you who've had encounters where you said, okay, whatever the opposite is, I'm completely opposed to it, and this is the only way to work. We really hope that by the end of this series, we show you how these different philosophies of medicine have bred um, different therapies and treatments that are effective in their own right, and more importantly, how these two philosophies can work together, um, hopefully to make our humanity much much better right at the end we're not trying to convince you one way or the other that anything is better but we do want to show proper respect to a tradition that is at least as old as ours and could not have lasted if it didn't have at least some kind of credibility to it sure at the end of the day folks your powers combined <laughs> are what we need <laughs> Dr. Josh right now is in a teaching hospital, and uh, I am scared and anticipating that at some point um, he's going to have his residents, uh, maybe five of them, <laughs> in a circle, uh, just walk into a patient's room and put their fists, you know, all in one circle with the rings on there. And uh, summon. Josh. There's going to be a rap too. Yeah. We're the, we're the residents. You can be one too, because saving your body is the thing to do. 
and he's he's gonna he might uh, walk in or fly in on wires, um, but you know if you happen to be in a, a, a hospital in Chicago or anywhere because. <laughs> He does have several state licenses. Uh, just watch out if you hear about a flying doctor. Uh, that'll be our very own Dr. Josh. Smoking and overeating <laughs> is not the way. Hear what Dr. Josh has to say. The power is yours. And mine a little bit, but yours and mine. <laughs> we both have power. <laughs> oh. I'm not going to let this go. <laughs> no, this is definitely going to turn into a thing. <laughs> Please join us next time for the continuation in our interviews with experts as we learn more about traditional Chinese medicine. As always, we love to hear your feedback. Please send any and all comments, questions, and concerns either to our webpage or to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash travelmedicinepodcast. We're on Twitter. I'm at Dr. J Comedy. Santosh is at Toshifro. Ward is at Travel and Medicine. Our music is composed by Rachel Leisure. I think that covers our whole exit spiel. Yeah, and specifically, guys, in comments this time around, um, we'd love to hear some specifics. If you want to tell us about um, how Western medicine has helped you in some way, or if traditional Chinese medicine has helped you in some way, or even better, if both philosophies have ever combined in your life to give you some amazing results, or even if you've had negative experiences. And with that, we say Sheshe. Zaijian, and until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. Ooh, and namaste, too. Why not? catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 